141. This is Greg Duncan. This is Angela Dugan. This is Josh Garverick. And this is Martin Woodward. Hey, it's like we have a full crew. Well, it's always when we get the good guests on. Have you noticed? It seems to be like the host turned up for the interesting guests. And then when it's just me and you, Greg, it's just me and you. Funny that. Sometimes it's just you, because even I can't be bothered turning up. Those are the great shows, because you know, I, I can do yeah. anything on those Yeah, shows. I do. I'm but, uh, and nobody listens to them, so it's good, you know? Okay. Uh, actually, I want to make sure when we get to our feedback session at the end, you guys are really listening. I, I, I we, we had an amazing amount of uh, uh, response to our sticker call out. I, I really, you know, before we start, I want to thank you all for listening and reaching out for that. And we'll reiterate with that call. I guess we can go and, and see, send out some more stickers. But first, let's you introduce know what we our do, guest. Before we do that, sorry. We no, should make sure all of our co-hosts have a supply of stickers. Because what I've started doing now, people come up and approach me when I'm out, like, not walking the dog, maybe, but when I'm out at a conference <laughs> and things and say, hey, Martin, like the show and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, talk about Radio Tiffers. And I, I usually have to keep stickers with me now. So, yeah, we should. Everybody should do that. I've gone through like a dozen. Seriously, we who knew we had so many listeners? It's brilliant. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Really? Um, and for you, you guys, the hosts listening, we, we have the, the sticker links in the show notes. So, Josh, Angela, uh, feel free to order yourself some. The, the money goes to Martin for the Radio TFS ones and Donovan for the – actually, Willie did the Donovan. Why don't you just send me your addresses, folks, and I'll, I'll sort that out now. Okay. Oh, I could do it too. I've got, I ordered fifty of both for. Bills. Yeah, but we might as well let. We might as well. I'll, I'll, I'll get Uncle Brian Harry to pay. How about that? <laughs> okay, okay, you win on that one because uh-huh. uh, I was telling Angela. Well, uh, the, the the response on those was so great, but it was the distribution. It was Europe and then down the street from where I work. That's there was uh, yeah the UK, Sweden, um, the Netherlands, and yeah, Los Angeles. Yeah, right. Well, I, I let's, let's talk about this after the show, but don't be posting anything to Europe. I should just post those because they're a lot simpler. But anyway, let's talk about okay. this after the show. We'll get cracking. All right. Uh, our guest, first time on the show, Mr. Edward Thompson. Edward Thompson is a program manager at Microsoft, where he works on version control systems. He helps ensure that people using Git and version control to build and deliver, he helps ensure that people are using, that are, people using Git. No, people are using Git and version control to build and deliver their software more effectively. Before becoming a program manager, Ed was a software engineer working on version control tools at Microsoft, GitHub, and SourceGear. He's the author of Git for Visual Studio video training from O'Reilly Media and is a frequent, you know, I've been working on that word for the last half hour. I cannot say frequent and a frequent conference speaker. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. I can't believe you've never been on before, Ed. That's a travesty. I know. I'm glad you finally corrected it. (laughs) Well, Angela gets all the credit for that. She was jumping up and down and she smacked me upside the head. It's like, you've not had Ed on before? Yeah, it, so she gets full credit. For yeah, that. I've worked with Ed for like 10 years, and I am uh, never invited him on, and then Angela gets him on. So thanks for pointing that out to him, uh, Greg. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was starting to feel a little bit of a complex. It's true. Martin and I have worked together for like over a decade now. I've almost known him as long as I've known my wife, and That's no Radio mad. TFS. Yeah, sorry about that. No, right, but thanks let's for move on. All right. So what news do we have, Martin? 
Wow, yeah, it's been we've been busy again, haven't we? So, uh, yeah. So uh, first things first. Um, did you see? Uh, Brian's been talking about some of the the build stuff. So um, he'd been talking about the uh, build automation capabilities. You know, we've had the the new build system for quite a while. Um, originally, back in gosh, the build's been through so many iterations. If you think about it, like 2005, it was just it was it was basically. M- they got asked to go build a build system that was influenced by MS Build, and boy, did they. And so, uh, like, 2005 was just basically MS Build with a, a cron job on top of it. And then um, from there, we did the change, would it be 2010, where we had the XAML builds? And that was um, that was a great change. 2008 changed quite a lot, improved it. 2010 was the XAML builds. And that was awesome and had a lot of capabilities. Major problem with it, though, is that the XAML editing experience like never really turned up. You know, we had the editor in Visual Studio, but they were kind of hoping that it would, you know, scale. And XAML's just really verbose, and you can't human read XAML. So when it, after a while, it kind of, you know, workflow, Windows workflow was um, not Win, not WWF because we'll get sued if we say that, but Windows workflow wasn't going to be the right basis, and so. Um, uh, Chris Patson and Brian McFarlane on the VSTS team really drove a, 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 another new version of, of build, um, which was, you know, based in the web, based on modern technologies, fully cross-platform. Um, it has, you know, all the features kind of that people needed, but it was just a lot simpler and a lot easier to use and, I'd say, fully cross-platform. So, yeah, and that's really been really successful. Lots of people are using it. So what we're going to be doing is um, in future versions of TFS and um, from the summer, so from, uh, I think it's the 1st of July, yeah, 1st of July 2017, they're actually going to be sort of um, de- deprecating, depreciating the the support for um XAML build controllers um you can still on 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 hosted you know on like the f- the the free hosted build servers and things you can still fire up your own build server if you want and point it at your VSTS account uh, you can do that with a cloud VM or an on-prem machine or whatever you want to do but um you know if if you need one of those older build agents then you can still do them and then the plan is kind of by the end of next year assuming everything goes okay and you know the data trends the way it looks like it's going to trend then um you know su- remove kind of the support for xaml builds and have people moved over um if you want help taking your existing build definition and you know you want to keep it building then you can um you can build it over the easiest thing to do honestly is to just like reassemble the tasks because they're pretty straightforward um and all the tasks are covered and, you know, it's much more, it, it, it's a super set of functionality available in the new build stuff. But, um, yeah, there's no, like, I don't know, Angela, have you seen a, like a one-off, you know, migrate my XAML build? You kind of have to, have to do it again from scratch, really, do you? Yeah, you really do kind of have to build it from scratch. And I mean, to be honest, it, in a lot of cases, people really don't want to take their existing builds and just rewrite them because in a lot of cases, they wrote those a long time ago. And at this point, it's a kind of a good opportunity to like, revisit and and maybe even redo it in a slightly better way but oftentimes people weren't like the xaml builds people because it was so 
like because the plugin experience was so complicated and the customization experience was so complicated they've not done that much most people haven't done that much customization most people are just kind of building a solution file and doing a bit of other stuff really i don't know you you would see the extreme end of it though i guess of people who've like extremely customized everything yeah i've, I've kind of seen the extreme of both ends huh so i remember paul talking about that and one of the things he would recommend for his people would basically do have one task to execute the PowerShell script and just pile everything into the pile sh the PowerShell script. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that boat, moving over should be even easier. Yeah, well, yeah. So we'll see. Um, during the same sort of time period, um, the team are also the, the, the biggest missing thing right now, um, having written a book on TFS and like tried to explain builds in book format and in blog post format, the biggest thing that's missing right now is the um, you never code based configuration because it's a lot of graphical UI. So the team are bringing in. We announced it a build. We're bringing in um, pipelines as code. So basically a YAML file which will describe your build definition and works with all the existing marketplace extensions. You know, is the build definition as it is, and but have that persisted as a human readable yaml file so you can still copy paste bits of builds around you'll be able to template builds and things like that so um that'll be the big missing piece that will hopefully make all this 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 whole transition make sense for everybody so uh, i think it's okay so i'm interested to hear what our listeners think and i'm interested to hear what all you think are you, any particular angst josh and angela or, or greg you have builds any angst about this about yaml no 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 about about <laughs> YAML going YAML. Away. not yaml <laughs> I know we're just moving down the alphabet one, but yeah, right, yeah, serves me right for not paying attention. Um, yeah, yeah. XAML going away? No, I have no no qualms about that whatsoever. Okay, Andrew, are you yeah, cool? I, Is it just more revenue I, for yeah. you and your consulting business? <laughs> well, there, there, there's certainly probably a little of that, but you know, honestly, I, most people that use the XAML stuff were really frustrated with it, so it's it, I've not really had any negative feedback. I mean, there's certainly been a few people who are like, oh gosh, you know, I got like 30 or 40 build definitions to rewrite, but it's so easy to move them in the new system that it ends up just not really being a big deal. Yeah, cool. Cool. That's good news. And then just quickly on the on the update side, we update, we shipped um, RC2 of update 2. So update 2's, uh, um, so we, t we usually do this. It's like the, it's the, the bunch of bug fixes release. And it's kind of like the, and usually what that happens is, um, it's like the last major update of a particular channel of, you know, on-prem TFS installs is the, you know, is the fix everything one. So not not much new functionality, but fix everything. And I think we're doing a bunch of localization as well. So that, that, that'll be available. RC2's out now. We're pretty, you know, RC2's looking pretty good. We're pretty confident about it. There's go live as usual, I'm pretty sure. I'm almost yeah, yeah, sure. And then um, uh, the plan is to um, yeah, get that wrapped up and then, you know, ship out update two. And then hopefully um, ship the first preview of the next version of TFS um, in, in sort of, you know previews of it summer going into q1 uh, sorry not q1 that i'm talking microsoft fiscal years here going into q3 of 2017 you know towards the end of the uh, year we'll see but we'll, we'll probably have another update with some you know another bug fix release the smaller one but this is like the last big tfs 2017 release really 
So, Martin, I have to ask the question again. You know, it says, looking at Brian's post now, yeah, TFSV next in August. So do they have the, have the requirements, the platform requirements changed? You know, I never chased up that question. I'll send the email out right now. I'll do it as we're speaking. So sorry about that. Yeah, I don't know is the honest answer. I'll go find out. And then um, just talking about Brian quickly, he's done a couple of really awesome posts this uh, this month. The first one was around like um, this, you know, this is what an agile DevOps organization looked like. And he just called out like a customer story where somebody had a problem. The, the, the engineering team responsible for it totally drilled down and then shipped a fix and then it was done. And just to... I've had that happen so many times since I come back to the team. It's an absolute privilege to be involved with a team. We had, you know, for the global DevOps bootcamp that happened the other weekend. Yeah. Um, there was an issue with uh, Remy was, um, no, who was it? Yeah. Renee, sorry, was creating the um, account. Um, and he was creating a bunch of pro- team projects using scripting for a bunch of people. And ran into an issue and was like, oh, this is a bit weird. And sort of, you know, sent me an email with, oh, this is a bit weird. I'm going to do X, Y, Z to mitigate it and I'll be fine kind of thing. So I forwarded it on to one of the engineers on the team, a guy called Chandru, who, who Ed knows very well. And um, Chandru was like, oh, yeah, that's weird. And dig into it. And the next thing you know is like this massive email which debugs the issue with graphs and all sorts of analysis and all sorts of stuff. And then the root cause and then the fix. And then the fix has been rolled out into production and, and the fix is shipped. And I'm like, what? <laughs> We just said it was a bit weird, you know, and this is just the culture of the team. Just it's awesome. It's really, really cool. And and speaking of culture, Brian also posted today um, an email went around internally and kind of Brian does what he did and posted it externally to talk about um, how we've changed how we test um, again, because enabling continuous delivery you can't run all the tests that we used to run you know so we had to kind of prioritize tests and and do it a bit differently so he kind of explains the approach there and um how we've done and how we've proceeded and yeah and nowadays we just have we just have engineers we don't have devs testers and ops people we just have engineers well to be fair we have engineers and pm which is me and ed you know so um we're, we're like overhead and then the people that do the work. So yeah, it's, it's a really good post. If you want to learn more about like how we do DevOps and some of the things we've had to do to transition, then definitely take a look at those two posts. So Angela, what kind of things have you got, have you been up to recently? So I, honestly, for me, I have been crazy busy getting people migrated to VSTS. I feel like it's like the perfect segue, right? Cause Martin was just talking about some of the reasons why, you know, it's a great place to be today. And you know, we, we work with a lot of customers who've been using TFS, you know, some of them since the beginning, some of them are on, you know, older versions, 2008, 2010, some of them are on 2015, but, you know, they're they're ready. They're ready to move to VSTS and to stop maintaining their own hardware and to start getting, getting the fixes and the new features as soon as possible. And so... I just feel like lately that's that's been almost a full time job for me is is not just doing the migrations because there there's a lot of prep work to that and a couple of things that uh, that I ran across recently um, have been some some great articles where you know folks like me that are out in the field doing these things I mean we're learning a lot of lessons as we go we're learning what are the right questions we need to ask before we <laughs> migrate. Um, you know, what tools work better than others and are, are appropriate in different situations. 
Um, and, and so it's great. I, I think it's great that we're all kind of out there putting out what we're learning because it, you know, it's the, the landscape is moving so fast. That's kind of the way we have to do things. And, and a few articles that I saw that were, that were really good that I know you're going to be posting in the show notes is, you know, so there was a, there was a good article from Sachi Williamson. He's from Northwest Cadence. Um, and he had a good article, um, on why to move to TFS. It, it kind of got to the, the heart of it, which was, you know, here's the features it can offer. Like, check out the features timeline, right? Where Microsoft keeps an updated, kind of more or less a product backlog of, of what they're rolling out and, and when it's coming. Um, you know, and kind of talks about some of the the obvious advantages of just moving to any any platform that's that's hosted in Azure, which is you don't have to manage it, right? You don't have to worry about patching. You don't have to worry about, you know, maintaining a bunch of servers, so there are some great resources and links for that because there's a lot of different places to go to kind of pull that together. So um, I, I liked how that post kind of summed it all up. He also he also said the thing that I think we all find ourselves saying to folks who are looking at VSTS, which is, you know, I, we get it. There's security concerns about the cloud, but most places where we go, like that, that you know, the data centers maybe, maybe run well, but I don't know. It's hard to compete with a company like Microsoft who... You know they've been doing this for so many years, and they are they are being held to such high standards in terms of of security and access that it's it's getting harder and harder to um, to for anyone to really justify hosting anything uh, on their own you know on premises data centers. So it, it was it was nice seeing someone just kind of being honest, like, hey, listen, I do this all the time. You know, start taking a look at this more seriously. Um, one of the things and, on and that, honestly, Andrew, is I sorry, I just say one of the things on that is I I point quite often point people to the certifications that we've got and then sort of say hey what is it you need you know i try and sort of push the question back like these are the certifications we've got for how we handle security and privacy of data and stuff what which certification would you like us to have like what would what do you need to be aware of and because quite often it's just this it's an emotional reaction rather than a one grounded in fact so by asking them hey what can we do they're like um <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's there's all kinds of white papers and stuff out there talking about the certifications, but the list has gotten so long that, like, I you know, I feel like, you know, six, seven years ago, I probably could have said, oh, yeah, they have this certification and that certification. But there's so many these days, like you really do kind of need to to dig through the white paper, make sure you understand the specific concerns of the customer. And, and you're right, be able to say, you know, they've got that. They've got that. OK, what else can we do for you? And and that does go a long way. Just having those conversations. Another uh, another good one that I saw uh, was by uh, Richard Fennell. So he's a he's a fellow MVP like myself. Um, so he wrote a good post on uh, different options for migrating to TFS uh, or to VSTS from TFS. This is something that uh, you know I know I know I've done a, a few presentations on this as well because it's it's not necessarily a, a cut and dried cut and dry decision, right? Some customers they want to move everything. Some customers. You know, they might just take the latest code and check it in and say, you know what, we'll archive history, whatever. Um, some customers are somewhere in the middle. And and I think the, you know, the hard part about that is it, it shouldn't be a quick decision. Um, it, it really is something you want to think about. You want to think about the impact of where your history lives. You want to think about, you know, is it something you have to do because because maybe you get audited or you, you have some some compliance issues. Um, some of it's about ease of use, making sure people can find what they need. Um, and in a lot of cases, it, it comes down to, you know, I mentioned that a lot of our customers are coming from TFS 2005 originally, right? Maybe they're on 2012 today, but in some cases, you can tell they came from 2005 because they've got 60, 70 team projects and everything's kind of all over the place. 
Um, and so they're not set up in a in a good way to to leverage some of the new features like the dashboarding and the delivery plans because everything is far too siloed. And so there's some tough tough calls that you sometimes have to make about you know what gets merged, what gets migrated, what stuff do you do you you know just doesn't work anymore for the team. Um, and so it comes down to more than just kind of data and tooling. And sometimes it comes down to like you know, how has your culture changed? How has your processes changed? Let's make sure we're enabling that in the new environment. And so he talks about um, some of the things you have to think about when you're migrating. Um, he talks about the high fidelity migration tool from Microsoft. He also lists out, which this is super helpful, um, a list of all of the third-party tools that you can use for doing different levels of fidelity of migration. Some are free, some are not. Um, some require a whole lot more hands-on and some are more push button. So that was real handy. And, and I think, um, you know, I, regard, regardless, I know I'm a consultant, so this may sound a little biased, but I, I really do think it's a decision that everyone should go into with someone who, who has been there. Um, but this post can certainly give you an idea of some of the things that you should be looking at. And yeah, I think- flowchart there is awesome. Oh, right. That like flow that flowchart is amazing. Yeah, it, it, it does give some really good kind of decision tree things like, hey, do you worry about this? No, then go here. Um, so that that's also a really good thing because there's so many decisions to make. Like I said, it's not just do I go or do I not go? It's there, There's a lot more to it. Um, and I think the last thing I do want to call out, I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. And I, I know you had Ed Blankenship on the podcast to talk about this to some extent. Um, but there's a great migration guide out there um, on uh, Microsoft.com. You can download. You can download a PDF that has a lot of really great information about the, you know, what they call the high fidelity migration tool. So if you could kind of overly simplify this to, I am literally copying your local collection databases up into the cloud. It's you know under the covers. It's way more complicated than that. But um, the end result looks and feels like you literally just kind of copied and pasted everything up into the cloud. Um, it's a great, you know, if you decide that that's the way you want to go, it's a great place to start. Um, it's got a, a lot of high-level information about what the flow of that should look like. It does mention a lot of prerequisites and caveats. Um, that's one of those things where when we're going to work with a customer, we always come in with the list because we're like, hey, if you haven't done X, Y, and Z, there's no point in us even showing up. So it'll, it'll give you some of those things. Um, the one caveat I always issue when I talk to people about that is, while the PDF is great, you know, even Ed always said, like, it was never meant to be the end-all be-all. There is a lot of really great in-depth information on MSDN that you really do need to make sure that you go through in addition to that guide. So always want to throw that out there because I've seen people step in that and, and get themselves in trouble. So, Edward, I've got an off-the-rails question on you. Are you hearing or involved with any, like, GitHub to VSTS migrations? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not seeing a lot of that. Um, you know, GitHub is a great place for open source, but Visual Studio Team Services doesn't really have the same level of, you know, public projects. So right. I'm not seeing a lot of people moving out of GitHub and into VSTS right now. What about keeping projects in sync between the two? That I am seeing. I'm seeing a lot of people who are, you know, kind of half open sourcing. You know, they don't really want the whole open source workflow. They want... Um, you know, they, they kind of want to throw it over the wall. So they develop it inside their firewall and put it in, you know, maybe on-prem TFS, maybe VSTS. And then they have some sync job that, that pushes the code over to, over to GitHub. And that's fine. I, I'm you conflicted know, it's really what I think about that. You know what I mean? Because, like, I know it's possible to do and I see people do it and, and it's easy to do. But I just don't know. I don't know if I want to, like, I don't know if that's the correct pattern. Uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't it doesn't know. feel right to me. Yeah. Um, and especially like once you start adopting like a 
more a, a true open source workflow where you start taking contributions and taking pull requests, then it's a mess. Yeah, because you have that you have that impedance on pulling the pulling the pull request down into TFS and or VSTS and then merging it there rather than just pressing the merge button over in GitHub land. You know, I'm seeing exactly. I'm seeing lots of people use our build system against uh, GitHub now, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, but no, in terms of migration, well, I agree with that. It's quite often it's if people do they tend to just bring the source over and that's just, that's two lines git add you know remote vsts git push vsts so that's the that's the vendor independence of git you know we've lost vendor lock and resource control i'm not quite sure why we gave that up but never mind now we've done it the customers win so that's good so josh you did a lot of extensions is there any other news about like extensions or any resources or anything cool that you've seen as a matter of fact, there is. Uh, my my friend and fellow Ranger and fellow MVP, Mikhail Kreef, has a post out there that is a list of all of his VST extension resources. And it goes covers everything from the official documentation to sample code to blog posts to uh, different videos, trainings, and actual tools. And if you look at the very bottom there, you might recognize the name that's on that list. Um, just throwing it out there for anyone who wants to check the show notes and grab the link for that. Um, some really good information in here, and, uh, and I've, I've actually fielded a lot of questions from folks using my template that um, are just around how do I get started and, and, and what are some of the areas in which this would be a useful endeavor. And, and Mikhail's really done a great job in putting together a, a pretty comprehensive list of all these different resources. And it looks like, um, as long as we're on the VSTS topic, Another one of our favorite Martins, Mr. Hinshelwood, has uh, put out. He's put out some uh, the, the tale of two Martins, uh, and, we, uh, and we all speak funny. But there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's 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 all relative, I suppose. Um, yeah. So he just put out some updates and bug fixes to his VSTS sync migration tool, and what's nice about this is you can uh, migrate revisions on a work item history. You can do a bunch of work item. Updates in bulk, which is really nice. Um, there are some other features in there as well that are really, uh, really cool, like merging or migrating a partial or an entire team project from one location to another. That's you know, collection, account, or even a server. So uh, a lot of portability wins with that. And the link is, again, in the show notes for that if you want to go check that out. Very cool. Hey, we've got... Um... Ed on the show. We should probably should we should jump in to chat more about Ed. Yeah, but let's let's hit some of these really quick. Go for it. Some let's, of these I let's really have a quick roundup because sure there's some awesome news today. Okay, the first one that I want to make sure I want to hit on is the um, writing to the build report in TFS 2015, and it works in 2017 too. So Object Sharp, I was looking for this post. I knew I referenced it, or I knew I, I cached it, but I couldn't find it. But this is something that I'm doing in my builds now, which is really pretty awesome. Part of my build process, I, there's an XML file generated. I reach into that using PowerShell and then um, do the right host to add an attachment. So on your build summary report, you can have your custom named and custom section um, uh, part right there on that uh, build summary page. So I, I, that was is just really pretty cool, and it's not documented well. So um, Dave's post here does that for you, and we'll get you started. Uh, last one. Um, actually, I want to make sure we get this one that Angelo wanted to talk about. 
about the um, favorite DevOps interview questions. Mm, I should look at that. Yeah, I'm hey, doing, I, I'm just doing yeah. interviews at the minute for some jobs. So I should go grab <laughs> some of these. Right. And, and honestly, when I was looking at these these questions, I mean, they're fantastic questions for interviewing people for a DevOps role. But a lot of these questions, I think, could be used for just about any role. So um, I I really like this one. It, it focused a lot on um, DevOps, not just being about necessarily about tooling. Right. They also talked about culture and process. Um, you know, I, I think probably the only caveat I'd issue is, you know, there, there's a lot of reference to um, hiring developers. But honestly, I think, you know, anybody could fit into a, a DevOps type role. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, someone who writes code. And I guess I'm assuming a little about how she uses the term developer. But some of the questions that came up. Um, it, it wasn't just about, again, they weren't just asking about, you know, release management or chef or puppet or anything like that, right? They were asking questions like, hey, talk about some experiences you've had where you've had to create kind of an automated pipeline and what, what you learned from your failures, right? So kind of, you know, trying to, to dig out some of those other traits that you look for in, in a DevOps engineer. So things like, you know, ambition, honesty, humility, all those great things. Um, focusing on needs of the business, um, how to make sure that the teams, they talk, I saw like three or four different people had questions about literally building bridges between different groups of people who don't normally interact. Um, and then of course, there were also lots of questions around, you know, implementing, uh, you know, DevOps pipelines that push out to Azure and, and how do you integrate different tools. So, you know, how we can integrate TFS and VSTS can integrate with, gosh, just about everything these days, you know, Maven and Jenkins and TeamCity and Puppet. Um, so it was a nice combination of, of not just the technical, but also looking at um, how they interact with people and how they collaborate. So I, I would highly recommend um, reading through the sample questions and keeping an open mind about what kind of role you could use the questions for, for sure. Awesome. And the last one I want to call out is on the Channel 9 um, Channel 9 blog. Uh, we, I did a whole series of MS Build 2017 revisited posts. And the last one in the series is all about ALM and DevOps. Of the 32-ish sessions, I selected, grabbed about 20 of them and highlighted them all in this one page. So if you're thinking about looking, if you're looking at, oh, you know, all that content, the hundreds and hundreds of content for Build 2017, and you're just looking in the ALM DevOps ones, uh, go to this post and I've highlighted a number of them for you. That's very cool. I want to, we should, we should retweet that, Ed. We should get that out there. That's amazing. All right. So, Ed, why have we not had you on the show before? Well, I think you have to look to yourself to answer that question. No, I don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's that's a great sucks. question. I actually don't know. I'm, but I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. So do you want to say, Ed, what you've because you've been around TFS and everything else, DevOps for basically ever. So do you want to do like the Feels that yeah way. yeah do you want to do you want to do some of that brief history first how you started with this yeah stuff? yeah for sure so I you know I used to work for this tiny little company in a cornfield in Illinois called SourceGear that did version control stuff and uh, at some point SourceGear kind of pivoted and decided to take a look at Team Foundation Server as or what was it called then Visual Studio Burn Tools it was yeah. And then it was so, Team Foundation Server. We never Visual Studio Team System, but it was always Team Foundation Server as part of Team yeah. System, I think. Team System, yeah, that was what I was looking right. for. I'm I'm getting the VSTS acronyms confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so at Team Prize, we built this, uh, you know, with Martin uh, and a couple of other fellows. We built this um, cross-platform, 
you know, client, you know, so that you could, you could talk to team foundation server from, from Linux and Mac and all these like bizarre legacy Unixes and mainframes. And so that's how I got, uh, got involved with team foundation server. And I've kind of been here ever since. One of my favorite posts we should put a link into that you did was the, the tour around our build lab, you know, when you were showing people like the crazy, like, you know, AI Xboxes and all sorts of things we had kicking around. So. Yeah. So team prize eventually got acquired by Microsoft and became team explorer everywhere, which is, you know, totally still around and it's totally still cross platform. And when we got acquired, uh, we had to pack up all these crazy old Unix boxes because, you know, we had to have the same systems that our, our customers use. So we had like these ancient AIX machines and suns and stuff, and we had to load them up and ship them to North Carolina to put them in a, a lab, uh, in, you know, in Brian Harry's office, like, we, we really wanted to put it in his office, like right there, keeping his feet warm. But uh, he, he'd be fine with that. He loves that stuff. So that, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Give him a call. Hey, Brian, can you reboot this? Uh, but yeah, so uh, that that was a fun little blog post. All these pictures of old, old Unix boxes sitting in, you know, nestled tightly within, you know, pizza boxes running Windows server. And you're a, you you were a dev on the team for many years. I mean, you wrote our NTLM implementation, and you did Git merge. You know, you did you added merge logic to libgit too and stuff like that. So um, yeah, that's right. One of the questions that uh, Greg always loves is, um, what does a day in the life of Ed look like? And I know you've just moved from dev to PM, so I guess you're still figuring it out. But what does a day in the life of Ed look like right now? Yeah, I'm totally still figuring it out. Uh, you know, it was very straightforward when I was a dev. It's like, oh. I, I I get in in the morning. I start writing some code. I go home. Now you know I I feed my terrible social media addiction and uh, and I pretend it's work related. Um, so you know I'll I'll cruise like the twitters and the the hacker news and and uh, try to help people out who are struggling with with Git. Um, you know I I don't know that there's a typical day, um, which is awesome for me because uh, I I get bored a little bit easily. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I may be speaking at a conference. I may be flying around to, you know, go see a customer or something. Um, but what I, you know, what I don't do anymore is write code that ships in the product, which is really, uh, both bizarre and kind of freeing, right? Cause it used to be, uh, all of a sudden I'd get an email from, from Chandru, for example, and, you know, he'd have a problem and we'd have to fix it very quickly and get it deployed very quickly. And so there's a little bit less pressure as a PM, or maybe the pressure's just different. I don't know. So it's a lot of fun um, having a different role. So, so I'm certainly curious because I, I remember when you joined Microsoft because that was, that was right before I left Microsoft. You and I were like ships passing in the night. Um, what was it like going from Microsoft to GitHub and then going back to Microsoft? Uh, it was, well, that's a great question, Angela. <laughs> going from, uh, going from Microsoft to GitHub was, um, was a bit of a change, but not as much as what I expected. I, I really wanted, um, so, you know, when I was at team prize, we were like six engineers and that was it. Right. And it was so, it was so freeing. And so I really wanted kind of that startup, lifestyle again. And I think I landed at GitHub just a little bit too late. So it was, uh, uh, you know, GitHub is now a pretty sizable company, you know, several hundred engineers. So it's not quite as cowboy seat of the pants as it used to be. And that's really what I was looking for. Um, 
and I found that I, you know, I kind of missed actually Microsoft. So, uh, so it was nice to, it was nice to come back. The biggest thing that changed was VSTS in a year. Like there are so many new features. I, I, I know you guys talk about this all the time, but you know, I was, I was away from VSTS for a whole year. And so when I came back and logged in, I was, I was blown away. Like, uh, the, the, all of the Git hosting, you know, cause that's, that's where I, spend most of my, my time is looking at pull requests and, and the repository browser. It's so much faster than it was a year ago. Like it is, it, it's night and day. I remember it being a little sluggish, you know, let's, let's, let's not lie. And it's not anymore. It's incredible. That's one of those really interesting things as well, where we've, we kind of like performance was something we always spent a lot of time on. And then we went and went and tried to, you know, we were doing a lot of this internal push and trying to like get the performance good enough so that it would work well so it would work really well on the internal repos and things and you know and then we've come back and we're like oh wow we're actually faster than everyone now like we it was kind of snuck up on us that how fast we were once we once once she kind of pointed it out i think yeah it was incredible like i i actually recorded a video of you know brow like i just pushed up one of my open source repositories um libgit2 i pushed it up to you know just a couple of different services and i just just navigating through like i recorded videos just navigating through each of them and it's like i mean we were as fast as as one of them and faster than the others it was just night and day i could not believe it and what's it like going from dev to pm like you know like you say it's it's freeing so your boss mustn't obviously be working you hard enough but how is it like in terms of um you know do, do you What's it like? Because when you're checking code every day, it's kind of easy to understand what you've done. Like, are you able to figure out if you've had a good day or not yet? Or? Yeah, that's the that's for sure a challenge. It's like you know, when I write some code and deploy it to production, it's like, well, duh, you know, done. I I, I figured out what I did today. Um, and yeah, I I don't quite have that same like mental model of what a productive or good day looks like yet. So. Um, so yeah, I'm still trying to figure that one out. I, I just kind of assume that I'm failing miserably every day and, you know, every once in a while I get an email like, Oh, Hey, good job. So it's like, Oh, maybe I'm not. Maybe I, an email maybe from I'm Brian, one line email from Brian Harry of a day saying good job. And I'm like, I was like, take that one to the bank. That's like, if there's nothing, if he's got nothing there, like no criticism, just good job. Then dude, bank that one. Keep that one for the performance. Yeah, exactly. That was amazing. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, no, there's, there's a fair amount of imposter syndrome. It's, it's, which I think we can all relate with. Yeah. So, Hey, just talk about Git. So, um, uh, you, uh, you've gone from writing a bunch of distributed version control tools, not just TFVC, but you've been involved with others back in the day. And now you're using Git and you, you know, you're one of the people I, I always go to, to ask any question about Git. So what's that transition like how do you see people translate and what's the easiest way for people to kind of make the move from TFVC to Git if they feel the need to? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so, you know, here's the way I did it. And I don't know if this is really the best way, but I keep, I keep telling people it's the best way. And so far nobody's telling me that I'm wrong, but I think that the best way is to just start using it, you know, get one of those, my my old tool maybe it's subversion maybe it's on-prem tfvc maybe you know something centralized you know my old tool maps to get this way you know you'll get a cheat sheet right and and maybe read an intro book um my friend 
Uh, Emma Jane Hogman Westby has a great book uh, about learning Git. It's called Git for Teams. Um, that's a really good way to start. Um, I don't think that you should start with um, you know diving in and learning the fundamentals of graph theory. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I didn't do real well in graph theory in college. In fact, I failed it. Uh, and I still use get okay. Um, I don't think you really need to know it to start, but I do think that like when you, when you start using Git, when you've been using it for a while and when you, the point at which you're like really frustrated with it, when you're like, why am I running this command? I don't understand what I'm doing. Then you should start maybe looking at some of the more advanced stuff. Like if you, that's when if you start like thinking about how Git works at a at a little bit lower level, um, you might find it a little bit easier. Because those Git commands, they're all just like they seem like they don't make any sense, but but really they're just kind of a thin layer of abstraction on top of the way the repository is like laid out on disk. And so if you kind of under, start to understand that, I think that you'll be a little bit happier with Git. I don't know. That's, that's the way I learned it, but, um, and that's kind of the way I actually teach it. So what, one of the amazing things to me was when we went to our like first Git merge conferences, you know, I get committer conferences and I'm there busy, you know, with imposter syndrome. Cause I basically only know how to check in a few things and don't think I really know Git. And then I'm sat around a table watching PEF and the St. Marty and these people who, you know, like there's nobody else on the planet that knows Git better than them. And they're all discussing easy ways to do different things. And I'm like, oh, my God, we all don't know how to use Git. We're all just figuring it out still. What's going on? Oh, it's totally true. Like if you if you go to one of those, they'll be like sharing the shell scripts that they use to make their lives a little bit easier. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. How do we make Git so hard? <laughs> like, yeah. I know. It's, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But out of the box, it seems to like kind of work. It works really well for a lot of things. And then, you know. There's there's some gaps. Hey Ed, I had a question for you. You mentioned a little bit about sort of sort of the lower level action on Git, and I've I've seen some things flying around about GVFS. Could you give a little bit of insight into what that is? Oh man, GVFS, yeah. So the idea. So if if we take a step back and we look at look at Microsoft. Um, so if you look at Microsoft, like five years ago when I started at Microsoft, um, we we had a bunch of different version control systems. Like every team had their own thing. There was a lot of people using this thing called Source Depot. Source Depot is kind of the predecessor to the centralized version control inside TFVC, right? So it looks a lot like TFVC. It'll look really familiar to you. Then we had a lot of people on TFVC. And then we had some people on Git. Um, not, you know, the smaller projects, you know. Um, the VSTS team itself is kind of considered a smaller project at Microsoft. And, and so we were in Git, um, uh, because of course, you know, we eat our own dog food. Um, the problem with that was though, that, you know, how many, it's insane to have that many version control systems within a company. Um, we had different people on different teams writing these systems. And, uh, so we wanted to unify that. We wanted to build what internally we call it one engineering system. So, you know, Everybody is kind of on the same thing. That's especially nice if you're in Redmond. You know, you can jump from the Office team to the Microsoft team, or sorry, to the Windows team, to like the Bing team or what, whatever. Um, and then you can still use all the same tools. You don't have to like relearn the entire tech stack, right? So, so the idea was that we really wanted to simplify it and we wanted to make it on modern 
modern tools. And realistically, right now, that means Git. The problem is that putting Windows into Git just doesn't doesn't work, at least not out of the box, right? There's this really amazing quote in one of the Git books. Um, it's something along the lines of, you know, Git was built to work effectively on large repositories from day one because it was built to work on the Linux kernel, which is which is really cute. Because if you look at the Linux <laughs> kernel, it's, you know, it's big. There's like 57,000 files. When you, when, when you clone the Linux kernel, it's like almost two gigabytes gets downloaded. And like there's 57,000 files on disk. That's like not very big compared to, compared to VS, like the VSTS repo, the one that I work in, um, you clone it and it, you spend like eight gigs downloads you know, it, it takes a while and then it checks out like three gigabytes on disk. So it's, it's bigger than the Linux repo, but that's tiny by Microsoft standard. It's like really tiny. You know, the windows repository is like three and a half million files. When you, when you run Git clone, it, it tries to download like 86 gigs and then you've got 270 gigs, like taking up space on disk. That's just like the source and the tests and like binaries that you need to, to, have to build windows itself so like it just doesn't it doesn't work you can't put it into git um, if you tried to clone it it would like take 12 hours and then your network would reset right because you know most switches start resetting your your connection after a while so it just it totally didn't work so the idea behind gvfs is to make that work for um for windows to make git work for windows and the idea is to just not download everything so instead of cloning like the entirety of uh, the repository with all the history and everything, you just download like the most recent commit and you just download the, the metadata that describes how the repository is laid out. Like just, just the, the structure of the file system. You don't actually get any files and like the ma- there's a ton of magic um, going on, but then like it kind of plugs into the file system GVFS does. And so when you start accessing files, it kind of just pages them in on demand from the network. And the idea is that like, if you're working on Xbox, cause you know, the windows repo is huge. It's, it's everybody who builds on windows. So like windows 10, windows server, Xbox, um, windows phone, like everybody's in this giant repository so that they can share code really easily. Um, but you know, if you're working on Xbox, you don't necessarily need some, SCSI driver from the mid nineties. Right. And if you're working on notepad, you don't need Xbox at all. So since so many people are working and, and they're just working in this like small little slice of the windows universe, it totally, you know, GVFS is a game changer. They don't need to download everything. They only need to download what they're working on and what they're building. So, so that's the idea behind GVFS. So, so I have a a question kind of continuing on the GVFS, uh, topic is what about, you know, quote unquote, normal folks? Like, you know, I, I, I don't work at a huge organization. I, I don't necessarily write a lot of code. Like what about GVFS for the rest of us? Does it, does it make sense for everybody else? No, to be honest with you, probably not like G no, probably not. Like GVFS is really, you know, enabling enterprise kind of get scenarios, like really, really huge stuff. Like, so like I said, the VSTS repo, you know, 110,000 files, give or take. That's the level at which you should start thinking. Maybe I maybe want to start maybe thinking about GVFS, right? It's not even a done deal there. We were fine without it in VSTS. I mean, it wasn't, 
it wasn't amazing. Like using Git in that size repository isn't an amazing experience, but it's totally workable. You know, some things are a little slower than you think they should be they, than they would be in like your hello world repo, but it was, it was doable. Um, and now it's faster with GVFS. We use GVFS inside the VSTS repo. And again, it's mostly to eat our own dog food. Like we're kind of on the bubble for whether we need it or not. Um, so I, so no, I would say normal folks don't really need GVFS. So Ed, I think it's, we're getting to be about that time in the podcast. Um, I wanted to ask you about some of your recent posts. Just before we do your blog. Before we start, I was going to say, if, if, if GVFS doesn't do, if GVFS isn't for normal people, then is there anything, like, wh- what else do we, what else does VSTS do that, that, you know, that normal people do benefit from when it comes to Git hosting? Is there, is there stuff there, like for Teams or whatever? I don't know. Oh, yeah, for sure. So like, you know, GVFS uh, solves like one aspect of the scale problem, right? And that's just like large repositories with just a ton of files. There are all sorts of issues um, that you can face that you might need to to scale. Like, what if you just what if you just have large files, like a few really giant maybe PSDs, like you know Photoshop or or PDFs or whatever? You've just got a few really big binaries then you you want get lfs and you know that's supported by vsts and and it's an industry standard at this point so everybody else supports it too of course um but you know there are all sorts of little aspects to um to scaling and my coworker, my colleague saeed um has started writing up some really amazing uh documentation and and kind of like learnings from moving all of these teams within Microsoft to VSTS um, inside our one engineering system. And so he's got some really awesome uh, writing going on right now uh, about this. And I'm, I'm sure you can put a link in the show. Yeah, notes. sure. What was, what was the, there's something to do with like, did we do some magic with branches or something like that? I was remembering. Yeah. Um, so like the, the internal name at least is limited refs. Right. It's this really, it's, it's kind of clever. So, and, and this is something that we can get away with at VSTS really easily because we don't have, you know, we don't, we don't do open source in VSTS, right? Um, so you have to authenticate. And so when you authenticate, the server knows, well, who you are and what branches you've pushed. So it can give you like this little slice of the universe where you only see your branches. So you can see like master and, you know, release branches and stuff like that. And you can see your topic branches that you've pushed up, but like by default, Martin, I won't see your topic branches. So when I run get fetch or get clone or whatever, like the stuff that you've pushed up, you know, I'm sure it's really great, but I don't see it, which is awesome. Because if you're hacking on like Xbox or something, you know, you're going crazy. You're working on new features in there. I don't need to see it if I'm just working on like notepad. Right. And and Um, is that enabled by default? I didn't even realize that. (laughs) Uh, no, I don't think it is actually. So it's something we, we, we only have internally right now. Um, and it's something that's rolling out. You know, we, we've tried to figure out how to, how exactly to roll it out to customers in a, in an easy way. So if you log in, so parts of it are there though, like parts of it are visible because you can favorite a branch, um, in the web UI, you know, there's this little star when you look at the branches. Um, if you favorite a branch, that's like, that's the way that I can start when I run git fetch, I can start seeing your code. So if you push something up and I want to, I want to build it, you know, or, or test it, I can favorite your branches in the web UI and then run git fetch and then I'll just get them. So there's some really cool, like, you know, it's, it's a really slick UI actually. Um, 
but no, it's not, it's not quite turned on for, uh, what's the term general availability. Right. I got to start learning these now that I'm a PM. Yeah. It's not generally available. Yet. Okay. But it's, it's something that people will benefit from. Is it? I just heard, I just saw us using it. So cool. And then there's all the pull request stuff as well, of course, but yeah. So, and that's, that's, some something that's neat. It's unique to VSTS, um, is, so I don't want to, I don't want to bore you with the nitty gritty details too much, but it's called merge queues. So normally like on most people's Git hosting, right? If let's say you're trying to merge your pull request into master and let's say like 50 people are trying to merge their pull request into master all at the same time. They all click merge pull request at the same time, which is totally legitimate. Like that totally happens in the windows repo. There's like you know, 4,000 people working in that repository. There's all sorts of contention trying to get pull requests merged. So like assume that like 50 people hit merge pull request all at the same time. Then you, you know, one of them is going to get in and the other 49 are just going to get like some error message. Right. And that's a total bummer, you know, because, you know, the branch changed out from under them. So, uh, merge queues in visual studio team services, when 50 people hit you know, merge pull request all at the same time, like the system just lines them up and merges them one after another. So, you know, if you're the 50th person to hit that button, you know, you still get in, you just end up getting your pull request merged against the 49th person's change. So it's, it's really nifty. And of course it doesn't work if there are conflicts, right? That's when it'll spit it back to you and give you that error message. But on the whole, it works really, really well, especially when you've got, you know, 300 or more people in the same repository. Cool. I'm oh, sorry, Greg. I'm done. I'll, I'll let you go back to where you were with that. I just, uh, you know, because it's funny because we talk like the GVFS stuff got a bunch of press because basically like VSTS hosts the largest Git repo on, on the universe now, and that's awesome. But it's it's really interesting to see like the stuff the team have done to make Git enterprise friendly because of you know where they've been focusing and and how that results in features that everybody can use, not just. Not not just like GVFS, which is you know Windows only right now and only for massive stuff. Like don't don't do that. You'd be insane. Like if anyone's got a Git repo that big and you're not Microsoft or one of our competitors, then that's pretty crazy. You know you should be like how how are you writing that much software? So um, but the merge stuff, the pull request stuff, uh, the the stuff in pull request to be able to do like branch, you know, builds on verifying a branch and things, all these features that got built because of the needs of an experience is just, just benefits everyone. So anyway, I'll shut up. I'll let you go on. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> this is a great show. I mean, I, I've, I've loved listening to this. I've learned a lot. Uh, so Ed, like I was saying, it's about time to wrap up. I wanted to t- uh, give a shout out to your blog and the stuff that you've been blogging about. What kind of stuff have you been recently posting? Uh, that's a great question. So I came up with, um, so I teach, uh, I teach people how to use Git a lot. And when I do, I, I, I try to teach them like the next level, like the advanced stuff, like Git, how, how it works. Um, and as I was doing that, somebody asked me like, well, Hey, like they had this amazing insight. It was this young lady. I, I wish I could remember her name. She's like, so if, if when I run Git add, it stores the file in the repository, can I can I recover it? Wait, hang later? on a like When you I... type git add, it stores the files in the repository. Not when you type git commit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't so either. if you run git, yeah. So if you run git add, um, I'm gonna stop like, typing so git add how... quite as often as I do. But anyway, carry on. No, dude, you got to type it all the time because you can recover this stuff. So here's the deal. So you run git add, and it it takes the file in your working directory, and it it 
it stores it in the repository and it, it, it doesn't commit it yet, right? It's just getting ready for you to commit it. It's, it's, it's staged now. And if you're on Git status, you can see that, right? And even if you, if you change the file a little bit more, you can see when you run Git status, the file will be staged and it will be modified, right? So, which is really, I, I, it's totally confusing at first. Um, but the idea is you run Git add, it's readying the commit. Um, it's, it, and so when you run git commit, it doesn't have to like look at those files. They're all just ready to go. They're all in the repository. It just updates some pointers and you know, whatever. But the idea is if you run git add, and then let's say you accidentally delete a file, you can go back to it because it's in the repository, but there, it's not committed. Right. So it's hard to find it, but it's in there. And so there's this little, I wrote this little tool called Git Recover, and it'll go through and it'll find the files and it'll just show you the most recent ones that you ran Git add on, but then never got committed. And so like if you accident, if you had some like really great work and then you, you know, kind of, kind of moved on a bit and made it less great, you can recover that, that original one. Or maybe, you know, sometimes you have a, a power failure right when you're writing writing a file, you know, I don't know. So, but that's the idea behind Git recover. It's kind of like undelete for your Git repository. Awesome. Did you, um, the one I like was what, the one you did for father's day when you did, was it Git dad? Do you want to tell everybody about that one? <laughs> yeah. Git dad. Yeah. Um, the idea behind Git dad is like, you know, sometimes I fat finger Git add and I accidentally type Git dad and you know, Git punishes me for that. It's, it says something like, did you really mean to run Git add? But I, I feel like I wasn't punished enough, so I made it uh, give you a dad joke. Any, any examples of classic dad jokes you included, or does it like get them from the internet? I don't even know. Oh, thank God, it gets them from the internet. Does like really? I had a couple. How awesome is that? Oh yeah, really? Is it like a Jason feed yeah, of dad jokes? There's yeah, there's some service. There's like dad jokes as a service. Nice. Um, like it's it's like I can't has dad jokes or something. <laughs> I, I I forget. Cause the weird thing is like somebody, it, it turns out that somebody else had already come up with Git dad. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> the internet's a, a, a big place. Um, and so, uh, they had found the, the dad joke generator, thankfully. So I just kind of refined their, their work and, uh, you know, improved upon it a little bit, the magic of open source. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that was Git dad. And I just, you know, stuck that up there on father's day as a joke. So uh, tell us about your uh, O'Reilly video. My O'Reilly video. Uh, my O'Reilly video helps you learn to use the, the Git integration that's in Visual Studio, you know, the Visual Studio IDE. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you are getting started um, with Git and you're using Visual Studio, I think it's a, it's a nice place to start. It just kind of walks you through how to, you know, really just how to get started, how to clone a repository, um, how to, you know, make a couple of commits and then push them um, up to, up to the, up to visual studio team services or up to GitHub. And it, uh, sorry, I totally brain farted. Um, <laughs> it's the video for the Greg and Angela's of the world, right? You want on a good day, we can spell Git, but that's about it. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell your sh yourself short, but yeah, it's, it's a beginning, it's a beginner's level sort of, sort of resource. And it, it, it does give you some kind of advanced topics like, you can, uh, you can add your own Git support into Visual Studio. You know, you can, cause Visual Studio is really extensible and it turns out that you can just run a Git command right from, uh, you know, you can add your own from the menu. Cool. So how can, uh, people get a hold of you? 
people can get a hold of me. I'm like the easiest way to reach me is on Twitter. Um, I'm, I, 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 like I said, I have a total social media addiction. It's, it's crippling, but it's good for people who need help with get on VSTS. Uh, and so I'm E Thompson on Twitter, Thompson without a P E T H O M S O N. I have one quick question for you. Um, yeah. no, we're done, Josh, forget it. No, sorry. What? I, I got in before the buzzer. Wow. <laughs> Um, so, so for, for other, uh, introductory Git resources, just off the top of your head, Ed, do you have any, any other resources that you can think of that are really great for, for getting your feet wet with, with Git and, and all things related to Git? So I mentioned it earlier. I think one of my favorites is this book that Emma Jane Hogman, Westby, sorry, let me do that again. So I think my favorite is this book that Emma Jane Hogman Westby put together. It's called Git for Teams. And as much as it talks to you and teaches you how to, you know, get started using Git on a team, it also tells you how to just work on a team in many ways, which is something that we as software people don't always think about, right? Um, and so it really breaks down like some communications kind of stuff, and it's it, it's an excellent resource. But um, I think my favorite after that, um, and I would be pro Git. Uh, the pro get book by Scott Chacon and Ben Straub. Um, it's just, you know, the canonical excellent resource. If you really want to level up though, you know, if you really want to take it to the, to the next level and get advanced, uh, I've got some, uh, uh, some videos online that kind of break open the Git repository and look at what's inside. I, I really think that understanding how it works kind of at a low level, um, can help you out. And, uh, you can find those at insidegit.com. Cool. I'll make sure we have those in the show notes. Inside Git, inside Not that everybody needs to hear me typing, but all right. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think you covered everything. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've if only we had another hour. If, I think, well, you got to uh, have me on again. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Absolutely. Next decade, no, another no. 10 years. No worries. Another 10 years. Yeah. We, I'll tell you all about what I've done in those 10 years. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, um, Ed, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. And listeners, I want to, again, reach out to you guys. If you want a Radio TFS or DevOps sticker, uh, send me a tweet at gduncan411, and I'll send it to you just like I did uh, Ron and Brian and Kenneth um, and Terrell. All you guys, your stickers are on the way. Hopefully, you've already got them. And they'll come with a little handwritten note of mine that you won't be able to read at all. Uh, but, you know, you can say, look, I got a signature from Greg, the Greg Duncan. And another feedback, Rod, uh, I appreciate your feedback. I appreciate you listening to the show. Hopefully those resources we sent you on yeah, kind of getting up to speed on the DevOps side. Uh, Rod had an issue where he was looking for a whole bunch of TFS courses and was finding administrative courses. But what he really more likely need is you know, how to use Git and, 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 and the, the setting up the DevOps kind of side. So send him a bunch of resources on that. And I'll try to get those in the show notes as well. Uh, Ladies, gentlemen, I think that was a show. What do you guys think? Sounds good. Thank you very much. Right on. All right. And, oh, you know what I forgot, though, um, besides cutting Josh off and not letting Angela speak, is how do you guys get a hold of us? How do you, the listeners, get a hold of us? You send us an email, radiotfs at outlook.com, um, at Twitter, at radiotfs. We're on Facebook, slash radiotfs, and voicemail. Again, we'll play your voicemail on the air. You can be your own special co-host here on Radio TFS. It only takes a call to one four two five 
233-8379. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Radio TFS.